we're recording. Apologies for the delivery scooter men revving outside my window. <laughs> this is Beyond the Pass, conversations with people from all walks of hospitality life. Centering mental health, Beyond the Pass is a conversation about life, hospitality, and what makes us get out of bed each day. We are so excited to be chatting to Lorraine Copes on this episode of Beyond the Pass. Lorraine is a procurement leader, life coach, and the founder of Be Inclusive Hospitality, a social enterprise and nonprofit committed to advancing race equity in hospitality, food, and drink. Lorraine has been honored with the Innovator Award at the GQ Food and Drinks Awards, Entrepreneur of the Year at the Precious Awards, and is an absolute force in this industry. Good morning, Lorraine. Morning. I just want to start by talking a little bit about where your passion for hospitality kind of started and when you sort of first got bitten by that bug. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, I'd, I'd say that my passion for hospitality started solely with my love for food and drink. Um, and so... You know, over 20 years ago, I actually studied logistics at university and um, got a job with a, a punch, uh, a, a, a joint venture between Punch Pub Company and the Spirit Group in the supply chain. So um, from there, worked within contract catering, restaurants, fine dining, casual dining, all within a procurement and supply chain capacity. But actually, what I've been able to do throughout my career is eat and drink for free. Um, <laughs> because hospitality is social and B because I've had to become a technical expert on the products I buy so whether that's champagne wine food um, in order to put the best deals in place for a restaurant then you really need to understand the product so yeah um, it's, it's an obsession and love for food and drink that really kept me in the industry. Were you surprised by how much you took for that? Or did you sort of grow up with that love and then it was sort of fostered professionally? Yeah, I definitely grew up with that love. Um, so, you know, grew up in a Jamaican household. Food is a really important part of, of our culture and um, always held a really important place and position in our lives generally, um, as did drink. And so that love was fostered from a very, very early age. Um, and I've been really fortunate enough to, to, to have a lifetime so far. I say lifetime, uh, have a career that has enabled me to really explore and indulge at the same time. And when you were working in those procurement roles, and especially a little bit later before you sort of shifted gears, was there a particular sort of instant or event that really drove you to start the inclusive hospitality? Or was it just sort of a cumulative effect of spending so much time in an industry with so little POC representation? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was definitely um, a cumulative effect of being in the sector and going to events and there's no one that looks like me. And it's, it's quite exhausting, actually, to constantly be in spaces when you're the only person that looks like you. Um, so, yeah, it was a, a culmination. But also, in 2018, when I was at the Gordon Ramsay Group, I um, quit my job and took some time out. I took about four or five months out of work, travelled, relaxed, studied a, a coaching, transformational life coaching diploma. And it was on, I'd say, sort of getting to better know myself during that period that it was really clear to me that it wasn't an option to continue with a career that I enjoyed, to be fair, but actually pursuing passion and purpose is far more important to me and also helping people um, move forward and upwards, primarily that look like me, was also really important to me. So I think that was probably a really 
important moment in my career where I decided that whilst, you know, I was on exec boards in procurement, um, that success for me isn't always moving up. It's that impact that you're having, the people that you're working with, the joy that you feel when you go to work, um, those other things. So really in search of that. And uh, I found that really with Be Inclusive Hospitality. I think there's something about the chutzpah that it takes to step away from something that I was going to say looks so good, but that's only part of it. But where you are sort of getting that thrill of the chase of moving up and up and up and to step away from that, I think to boil down like what in this really structured corporate world actually do I enjoy about my job? What I enjoy is connection. What I enjoy is fostering relationships, mentoring people, and to be able to then pivot and do something that holds a lot more purpose and passion for you. It makes sense to me why Be Inclusive has grown the way that it has and has become such a force. I'm really interested in Be Inclusive on the focus on mentorship and the important role that it plays in the industry for the individuals within it, both in terms of just general survival and particularly because it is still so white, but also in longevity, because I think it gets to a point where you need someone who's reminding you what you're good at and reminding you what you're excited about when you're working insane hours, when the economic conditions are really bad. And I think that it is such a lifeline for that and to really carve out a career. And I'm just wondering for yourself personally, when you started being mentored by people, how did that change your professional life? I'd say that mentorship has always, always had an impact on my life outside of work and within work, because I think Oh, I know for sure that we can all benefit from having conversations, taking advice and guidance from people who might have walked the path that we intend to walk or are more experienced than us. And that's not always an age thing. It's just an experience thing, right? And so mentorship, as far as being inclusive hospitality goes, is kind of one of the key pillars to accelerate change. And mentorship, hugely important, especially because... When I think about what we're trying to change within the industry, it's primarily people of colour kind of being in middle management and not going beyond that. What I have found hugely invaluable throughout my career is when moving from middle management to senior leader and director, having advice from those that are in those positions already on um, not only you know, from a technical perspective, like advisory in terms of the job itself. But there's so many things that you learn from a mentor what's outside of skills. You learn about mindset, you look at, you learn about their outlook on life. And one thing I know for sure, again, having worked with leaders across all sectors and some of my friends too, is there's a common thread of mindset um, on on how you achieve your career goals, right? that common thread, often optimism, um, often resilience, often um, have the, very much the attitude where there's a will, there's a way. So if I get no in, in at one door, I'll find another door or I'll create another door. And all of those things are necessary for us in general, general but also especially when you are a person of colour and what the industry signals largely at the moment is that if you are of colour, board role and senior roles are not possibly for you, right? So it's actually about finding that appropriate mentor. Obviously, we offer mentorship, but also finding your tribe as well. Mm-hmm. Because 
works also help to bring down some of those barriers we've found today? I think something that's interesting that you point out is that the further I get along the road in career and in general and watching different people, I'm always surprised about like what jobs are actually available. Because when I was managing a restaurant or existing in a restaurant and I had people working for me or with me that were so passionate and so good at what they were doing, we didn't know what we could go and do next. Say we wanted to change or be in a, in a leadership position. Like I didn't even know what those job titles were. And you're looking around and I think this is really, really common, but it was dominated by men, dominated by white men, dominated by straight white men. So there was this, it's hard not to internalize like what is possible for you. Of course. Right? When you're looking up and seeing. And I think particularly in hospitality, as opposed to corporate, where there's less of a structure, like once you get up to a restaurant manager, it becomes very unclear. And it's a lot of sort of choose your own adventure. And I'm wondering about how we understand our hospitality careers in the long term and what's available to us. And have you seen a shift in that since you started? I haven't actually. You know what? I think that um, in particularly head office roles are kind of the best kept secret within hospitality, which is a problem. Even up until now, I've been in procurement and supply chain in the sector for 20 years. And when I meet people socially or professionally and tell them what I did, there's often a reaction of kind of amusement and confusion <laughs> um, because a lot of people, especially within the smaller SME space, don't understand or realise that there are cogs behind the scene enabling hospitality rules to turn. And um, I think there's a huge amount of marketing that needs to be done from a sector perspective, because when people think hospitality, they think of relatively low paid jobs and GMs, waiters and chefs. And actually within the head office in hospitality businesses are marketing, finance, procurement, supply chain, and they're not low paid jobs at all. You know, you can earn a really good and comfortable living working within head office in hospitality. And so it would be in the sector's favor to actually demonstrate for people that are on the outside looking in or those within the sector of what is possible within the industry if you choose this as a career. And roles are invisible. There's a massive drain that we see when you get to a point where either like your body can't do it because it's such physical work or the hours become antisocial or your lifestyle changes. Maybe you have kids, maybe you get sober, like who knows what the thing is. But then you're looking around and being like, okay, well, I then have to leave the industry. Because mm -hmm. there's no way that I can make more money or work more social hours or et cetera, et cetera, in what I see. And mm -hmm. I think that we lose a lot of people that way. And I wonder, like, why is that? Like, why is that being gatekept so intensely? Is it intentional gatekeeping or like, is it just? I, I mean, I can only speak from, so the restaurants I've worked for have been anything from relatively small. So when I worked for Shake Shack, for instance, I was part of the leadership team that brought them to the UK. I was procurement director for Gordon Ramsay Group, um, Corbin and King. And for all of these restaurant groups, they all had head offices and all the head office functions were visible to those within the restaurant groups. Possibly what you might be talking about as a smaller, really independent restaurant, but the groups worked for pub groups of 700 pubs, for instance. But in every instance, they're very much aware that the head office functions, career progression could be there. It's more around access and how. Because just by nature of, for instance, what I have done for a living, procurement largely is around, you know, right price, right service, right quality, um, 
for a, a business, but it has to be operationally sound. And so it's impossible to sit in an office and be a procurement director, procurement manager, um, and, and do an effective job. You have to be within the restaurant. So throughout my career, I've always had relationships, strong relationships with the restaurant teams as well. And they've been aware of existing. And some businesses have done that very well in terms of offering it as a career path and some have not. And the businesses that we work with and the different members that we have, I notice a real difference between places that invest on hiring within their teams and have really, 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 really clear progression packages and also make it very clear, like if you're looking up at head office and you are like, wow, HR, that seems like something I'd be great at or whatever the case might be. They're really amazing about being like, okay, if that's where you see yourself in five years time, here are the skills that you need to develop. And other places like really don't do that at all and will always hire from outside. Yeah, it just depends on the business. But if you yeah. were chatting to somebody who was working in front of house or working in a kitchen that did sort of have their eye on a head office job or was looking to move into that space, what advice would you give them in terms of gaining some momentum to to find their way there? It's it's a difficult one actually. I think um working for a business that invests in its people is really important. But also remembering that a lot of those head office functions sometimes include people who, um, you know, have the technical qualifications um, to be be in those roles. But what there absolutely is always the opportunity for people to come in as, you know, whether that's a marketing exec or, you know, a, a junior buyer and work their way up. So in terms of advice, I think I think ultimately it starts with the kind of company that you're working for, mm-hmm. because you're pushing against the tide if you're working at a company you want to progress and the business doesn't invest in people right mm-hmm. like, yeah, that aligns with your, your your aspirations is really important it's interesting also what you say about career progression so we produce a, a, a report every year called the inside hospitality report and across the board I'd say that it's quite commonly known that hospitality as a sector has not been the best investor in people. And actually, in order to achieve career progression, people often do change roles. So I think that that is, is, I say, pretty standard. I don't have the stats on it, but I know it to be common, especially within the SME market or the SME space. When you guys do the Inside Hospitality Report, are the results ever surprising to you? Or is it putting words to stuff that you've just been seeing? Yeah, never surprising, to be honest. I think the, the reason why it was born, it was off the back of me having an idea on what the sector is, was, and, um, you know, is for different types of people. And the data for me has just kind of affirmed what I thought was true. Taking all that you get from the report and being in your community and talking to all different kinds of people and sort of entering more and more spaces... How has that experience had a hand at shaping the foundation and sort of the direction that you're going? I mean, to be honest with you, the direction was carved out way ahead of, you know, producing the report because um, the kind of strategy and business aim was something that was um, created well before that. So the data is insightful and important because it allows us to produce services and offerings and community initiatives are supported by actual data and it's been useful for us but it's also been useful for our partners so when we have worked with um, Ben's Original which we are at the moment um, with a seat at the table scholarship and when we've worked with Uber Eats we look for data that supports the why and 
don't get me wrong, with or without data, we know there's a problem that needs to be rectified. But actually, when you release in a press release or you're communicating externally, it's also helpful to have data that supports your your I really. So how has it helped shape it? Um, I would say that it's helped refine it, but not shape it because the, the strategy was set out. With the events that you're doing and the feedback that you've gotten from them, what have you found has been the most effective in building community um, and sort of building that platform? Um, what's been the most effective? I would say uh, there's a couple of things, really. I think, firstly, amplifying voices. Um, amplifying voices is really important because of, you know, the lack of representation that I see um, across the sector. But also just building networks, you know, I, there's a number of people that come to our events on a regular basis and I see them out with people that they've met at our events. A lot of people come to our events on their own and because it's such a friendly and welcoming environment, people know that there'll be someone to talk to and people are forging relationships independently of being inclusive, which is great. The networking piece, when we conduct surveys around, um, you know, what's valuable to them, networking is super helpful and that always comes up as a number one but obviously what's often supported by our events is access to qualifications or scholarships or something that can support professional development and we always try and instead of just having events for the sake of it it's always usually attached to an initiative that we're launching or we're running. Yeah it's something interesting that Sebastian Passanetti who was working here for some time before he moved back to Australia and I know did some work with you guys something really interesting that he said was that he had never been in a hospitality space where he didn't have to filter through being black before he filtered through being in hospitality, how much more he was able to just show up mm. and being in that community and having those conversations. And like, now he's gone back to Melbourne he started his own restaurant group. He's absolutely thriving. Like it's amazing. It's amazing. And has also, and I know really inspired by you and inspired by Be Inclusive, has started doing events that are trying to bring any folks of minority out of the woodwork and spotlight them and highlight them and elevate them. Once they see it modeled, once anybody sees anything modeled, it's so much easier to go into the world and help build that thing. And I'm wondering if there's things particularly that you've seen from members of your community where you're like, and now they're doing that thing and that's amazing. When I look at someone um, like um, Hena uh, Zinzawadia, I think I, I pronounce it correctly, who's amazing sommelier, she won a Spotlight Award and she's set up a wine club. And that wine club, by nature of who Hena is, is inclusive, it's diverse, um, winemaker perspective, as well as who attends. And so actually she's an example of someone, she set up the AL Collective with um, amazing chef Victa, He's an amazing chef and she's a sommelier. They've got a wine club within that, which I think is phenomenal. Ultimately, I firmly believe that, you know, this idea was birthed and will continue to grow off the back of there being a gap. Um, and there are other amazing people in the industry that it might ignite a thought idea for them and then they will build a platform or community. And there are definitely sub-communities that exist of like, uh, you know, some young chefs that I know, that I know get together. Um, so I, my I, my hope is that that long continues because just the value of having people in your network and your circle that understand what you do and can champion you from a place of knowing is just, it's, it's a wonderful thing. 
I think whenever there's sort of these weird economic times where like brick and mortar places are finding it harder to make money, people are spending less going out to eat, there does it does create space for like more for alternative ways of doing things. And mm. I think so often if you're going to get financial backers and you're going to get the real estate and you're going to get what you need to open a restaurant to be taken seriously, to hire PR, to get you in here and get you in there and have people show up and listen, the amount of capital you need and the amount of people you have to convince that you're valid is just absolutely crazy. And I think when we're in a space where there is so little capital and more places are closing than are opening, I've seen more pop-ups. I've seen more supper clubs. I've seen more food trucks. And within that space, it becomes more democratized, I think. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, I don't know how this is based on nothing but my own dreams, but I hope that within that, the more that we champion those places and the more that those places are championed by others, and the more people see them, the more people eat the food, because that's what it comes down to, isn't it? It's like, ultimately, it's like, do people want to show up and eat that thing? Do they want to show up and sit there and drink that wine or drink that drink or try that dessert? And if you get people excited about that, that's where I've seen folks that are traditionally underrepresented in the industry really start to thrive and take up a lot of space. Yeah, no, I think, um, I do think change is definitely coming, um, especially for um, black restaurants, um, so African or Caribbean and black owned drinks brands are wine, spirits, beers, the work. And um, if we use Chisiru as an example, um, Jocke is a phenomenal woman um, who formerly was a home cook, opened a restaurant, I think it was in 2020, and she built a reputation within the industry broadly, just based on her food being amazing. And she's gone on then to win awards um, and she's looking for a central London restaurant right now. So she'll be opening definitely next year. And her journey was, 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 has been a phenomenal one today. Loads of recognition, loads of acclaim. But that has been an unconventional way of building because even like something like her social media, I used to talk to her about her social media all the time. I was like, who's updating it? And she's like, oh, well... Um, she, she she wasn't that strong on social media. She didn't have a PR agency, but what she's built a phenomenal business on is through her excellence and who she is as a person, which is a phenomenal woman. And so hopefully when she's in a position, I don't know if she has PR yet, but to have PR, to be in central London and all these things, she's going to soar and fly. So I think that y- you can't, you can't stand in the way of excellence and greatness. And there are loads of brilliant businesses, a cocoa being another one that are out here that are building slowly and that will continue and will become, in, uh, you know, more in the fours. People just better understand that Africa's a continent. Caribbean has many islands, like the food's super diverse and super phenomenal. Um, and I, I think, I think next year, I mean, I think we've seen a lot of bubbling this year, obviously with the opening of Tatale, Ispiani, um, we've got like more central London black owned restaurants than ever before. Mm. And I think that's only going to continue into next year as well as visible food and drink brands as well. 
we as like sort of your average bougie central London going out to eat diner, there's so much we haven't tried. And the fact that now we're getting an opportunity to try these foods and champion these foods is like, that's what keeps it from becoming fucking boring. And like, yeah, I can go and have like a really like beautiful potato shaped like a flower. And that's great. And that's really nice. And I enjoy that sometimes. But also, do we want London to continue to be a place where people are looking to that continues to innovate that continues to be creative and it's only when i think we diversify what we offer and what we support that that can happen like for sure for sure otherwise it gets really dull yeah 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 no i agree i think what i've always loved about london is the fact that from a restaurant perspective you can find any kind of food that you want to eat i think what's evolved with um african caribbean restaurants is that you're finding more within central London and the array of different types of restaurants is really expanding. Whereas a lot of the, a lot of the African and Caribbean restaurants that were first here sort of from the like seventies, eighties and nineties were like mom and pops, like restaurants set up to serve the community solely in, in, in certain areas where, you know, there were high numbers of that community that reside. Whereas now what we're seeing I think is a a new age of um, those types of uh, cuisines um, finding their way into central London and being presented in a way that, you know, my mum or dad wouldn't expect it to be. (laughs) I think there's something interesting about the permission to be creative. And I think with food that we get from any minority culture, there's this idea that like, well, we want the most authentic and traditional version of it. And we want it to be really cheap. And we don't like, there's all of these assumptions we have about how that food is meant to look. And I think that it's really limiting. And there's something really interesting that Sal Dalma said, and she's the good food, such an interesting person, so kick-ass. And they said something amazing where they were like, that idea that it has to be authentic. They were like, my family comes from Goa, we then immigrated to Tanzania, and now we've been in England for, you know, 15, 20 years. So they're like, the food that we were cooking with ingredients in Tanzania, that food is different than the food that we cook with ingredients from the Sainsbury's. And it doesn't make it less authentic because it's all part of that story. And I think that when we allow food from different cultures to change to look different than we would expect it to to be at a different price point than we would expect it to be that's true equity like yeah. we need to let people innovate and be creative as much as we would expect anything else to it is but i understand where that um emotional attachment to our food comes from and it stems from a lot of history to be honest i think when i think about um like i'm jamaican um i think jamaican food is the best um of course and um, how Jamaican food has been arrived at is obviously, um, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a, a, a culmination of African food, of Spanish influences, Portuguese. But all of those influences have come, not in a harmonious way. It's come as a result of like a, you know, a, a, a history that of which, you know, it, people were enslaved, right? So when the back of a history like that, what is birthed is beautiful and is food there's a huge amount of emotional attachment to that food right so that 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 attachment of wanting food to remain authentic or wanted it to stay as is it comes from a place of when you potentially have everything that you are stripped from you as a result of history food culture and what you've been able to create off the back of that you hold dear to your heart right 
whilst I know this having, you know, I'm still friends with many chefs, it's about creativity, it's about evolving, it's about experimenting. And I get that as someone that eats out and has eaten out all over the world, different types of restaurants everywhere. But I also get why there's a real emotional attachment to things staying the same. Yeah. So I think I, I can look at it from both sides because I, I do understand where that comes from. Um, yeah. Yeah, I sense that a lot. Like my family is Jewish and it's very much a situation of like, I mean, you didn't come with furniture. You didn't come with any possessions. You certainly didn't come with any money. Like wherever you've ended up, literally all you had was recipes. And there are certain foods that you just do not fuck with. Like you do not fuck with them. And there is, I think, where we are able to grow that food culture is when we accept that like there's so many different versions of that authenticity so depending on where your family originated from were they eastern european did they originate in the middle east were they from north africa that's going to change the food that you think of as traditionally jewish as important to jewish tradition as preserving jewish culture and i think the more that we can accept that or not the more that we can, but the more that we do just get excited and see those big pictures. And that like, depending on who colonized wherever it was that you're living or where your family originated from, that food is going to appear differently and is still authentically Caribbean, West African, East African, etc. To be fair, and, and you know, but I, I don't think that is the biggest barrier that we're dealing with, to be honest. I don't think it's, I think it's about how food is perceived to be equal or not. Um, and that whole equity piece um, is, you know, we, we could sit and talk about this for hours and hours. I think that the part of the puzzle in terms of authenticity, I don't think that's the barrier stopping uh, representation, true representation within the sector. Some of the cuisines that are underrepresented, I think there, there's bigger issues there. Um, but I think as people, um, we'll, we'll all, and we all will go on a journey of, um, and, and opinions as to what we deem to be authentic or not. It's interesting because um, there's a chap um, who has supported us for our journey. He's done some workshops and stuff for us, uh, Iqbal Wahab, and he opened a cinnamon club. So I think this is correct, but I'm sure it was like the first fine dining Indian restaurant in central London. And he told me, and this was like maybe 30 odd years ago, maybe it wasn't 30 years, it was a long time ago. And at that point that he opened the restaurant, obviously it was its first. So people, especially people from, um, you know, South Asian culture were challenging whether this was Indian food or not, or, and, and because it was first, but, you know, fast forward two decades, three decades, and look where we are here and now. And I think it's really having access to space. And that, in my book, is really important. But then it's around the journey that it takes. Once there's that visibility, it allows creativity to follow. Yeah, when I think about the places that we think about as being in terms of media, like the drivers of the food scene in the city, and like a lot of those publications and people are, I know, good people committed to the industry, really love it, really have a passion for it. And when I go through their Instagram feed, it's like, okay, these are, I'm seeing the same ingredients over and over. I'm seeing the exact same style of dining over and over. And it doesn't take long to understand like why we're so far behind as an industry in terms of visibility and equitability. For sure, for sure. I think we're, we're slowly moving in the right direction, but it's slow. It speaks to the fact that in the industry, we're often waiting for validation all the time and when we need it to survive, but we're also waiting for validation from institutions that are so often steeped in racism, steeped in sexism and 
the sense that a community within hospitality has the power to elevate and celebrate the best among them, that feels quite exciting. The Be Inclusive Hospitality Spotlight Award, how that idea sparked and what drove that, the production of that. The, the same. The idea actually was sparked in 2020 because um, ultimately, having been to the, worked within the sector for the past 20 years, I've been to every awards under the sun. Um, we didn't see anyone like me winning awards, quite simply. And I think if you look at different cuisines, they're on a different path, some further along than others. So if you look at Indian food or Chinese food or Southeast Asian food, absolutely further along in terms of being recognised and being visible. Never seen a black person in 20 years in the sector win an award at any of the industry awards. And I have known phenomenal chefs, phenomenal businesses that are worthy of recognition. And so in seeing that, it's about either complaining about it or just create your own so that these people can be recognised. It's really as simple as that. Um, I think that um, what excellence is, is, is currently shaped by a select few and not necessarily a diverse select few. And so it was really important for me to have judges who were um, acclaimed and role models and phenomenal people across the sector who, um, who were admired by many of all backgrounds, but are actually, um, you know, reviewing some of the best restaurants, drink professionals, um, pubs, bars across the country as part of our awards. So um, it was it was pure joy. I can't wait to next year. It's going to have to be double the size um, because even though we had like 180, 190 people there, it was too small. There's something really inspiring about not waiting because like you can wait and wait and wait and wait for Jay Rayner to start elevating black businesses. You can wait and wait and wait for Michelin to start elevating black businesses or you can elevate black businesses and you can make a lot of noise about it, which I think you have successfully done. You can feel a real vibe shift. I hope so. I think though that we mustn't be naive to think that that it's going to be a singular act that's going to be game changing. For me, it's like a collection of initiatives that will continue to run consistently that will create change and I think if I compare how I feel here and now versus last year and the year before it's definitely it's definitely building and it's definitely um growing in uh, I suppose that vibe that I'm feeling whatever I do wherever I go that that we are moving in the right direction I think absolutely Quick fire questions. Let's go. Um, if you could only go to one London restaurant for the rest of your life, what restaurant would it be? It would be Chisaru. What's your favorite dessert? Uh, chocolate fondant. Best item on the menu at McDonald's? Filet fish. Um, what's your favorite view in London? I would say sitting on the hill um, in Brockwell Park and you can just look out and see the city. Who's your dream dinner guest? Oprah Winfrey. And do you have anything to plug, anything that's coming up, anything you want to shout about? Get involved, get in touch. Basically, irrespective of your job title, background, location, you there, there will be a way that you can get involved with our community. So you could be a mentor, you could be an ambassador, you could volunteer, you could write. So head over to our website, www.bihospitality.co.uk. And have a look around our website and reach out to us. We're always looking to grow the community. And so if you want to be a part of the change, definitely get in touch. 
Amazing. And we are going to link to the website and also to your Instagram um, in the show notes and on the Instagram so you can find it really easily there. Um, Lorraine, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. No problem at all. Thank you. Have a good day. Beyond the Pass is produced by Kelly's Cause Foundation. For more information about Kelly's Cause, please head to kellyscause.com or find us on Instagram at kellyscause.com.